0: Your father was well known as a uh, storyteller. I mean, a, a oh yes, everybody. yeah, he was a great storyteller. He liked to get him started, and you couldn't stop him. <laughs> and he knew a lot of things about Braintree. I wish to goodness I had uh, copied down more of what he said, of his stories.
1: Used to be three Flint brothers: Harry Flint, Lester Flint, and Waldo Flint. And they ordered each other never to step foot on each other's land.
2: Hi, welcome to Vermont Untapped, a podcast from the Vermont Folklife Center that explores the state through the voices of its own residents. I'm Mary Wesley. It's June, a month when, among other things, people celebrate Father's Day. Following the occasion, this month we're introducing you to a father-daughter pair who occupy a special place in the Vermont Folklife Center archives and collections. They are Perkins Flint, known to friends and family as Perk, and his daughter Catherine Flint Duclos. Side note, she spelled her name with two A's. Both were lifelong residents of Braintree, a small town almost at the dead center of the state, just north of Randolph. The Flint family goes way back in Braintree, Perk's great-great-great-grandfather, William Flint, was among the town's founders. Maybe it was this personal tie to the place that gave rise to Perk's encyclopedic knowledge of the town's history. But his ability to share and impart this history went beyond reciting names and dates. Perkins was known as a storyteller, a yarn spinner, a raconteur. Through his stories, we hear his keen sense of observation an appreciation for the human condition and a no-holds-barred approach to telling life as he saw it in the microcosm of the town where he was born, lived, and eventually died. We have Perkins' daughter, Catherine, to thank for allowing us to hear some of his stories today. And Catherine was also a storyteller in her own right. In the 1960s, aware of the vast body of knowledge her father was carrying in his head, Catherine sat down and made several recordings with him. In the 70s, future VFC folklorist Greg Sharrow moved to Braintree and met Mrs. Close, as he always called her. They formed a fast friendship based on their mutual love of local history. When Greg came to work at the Folklife Center, he interviewed Catherine multiple times for many of our research projects, and she donated her reel-to-reel recordings of her father to our archive. After Catherine's death in 2010, her family passed along other materials. The Flint-Duclos collection, consisting of Greg's interviews, Catherine's tapes, as well as photographs, letters, and diaries, is a gem in our archive. Because the collection is so rich, I'm sure we'll revisit Perkins and Catherine in future episodes of Vermont Untapped. Today, I just want you to get a good dose of their extraordinary voices and storytelling style. Something that's remarkable about these recordings is hearing the echoes of Perkins' stories in the ones that Catherine tells. She carries on the legacy of his tales and makes her own mark as one of the keepers of Braintree history. Here they are.
0: When I was uh, born, my mother wasn't very well, and about 17 months afterwards, my sister was born. So mother wasn't able to take care of both of us. Of course, I had an older sister. So I went down to Bethel and lived with my aunt, her my mother's sister. And uh, when I was 10 years old, my brother was born. And then I came home and stayed to home and took care of him. And then I became dad's right-hand man. I helped him down at the barn with all of the chores and milking and haying. And I can load a hay and load a hay or unload it just as much as a man can. I... I bet I today I could go out and harness up a, a set of a double uh, big horses and, and hitch them up just right, an ox, and I could go out today and drive a pair of oxen. Sometimes when I see them over that tumbridge fair and making such a mess of it, I <laughs> feel like going over and <laughs> taking their ox gold and showing them how to drive a pair of oxen. <laughs> but, uh, could could all young women? Uh, was it common for young women when you were growing up to be? able to do all of these things? Or? No. No, it wasn't. The, most of them were, did a lot of things, but not to the extent that what uh, we did, because D- Dad wasn't well, and he had to, we had to do it.
1: Uh, Dr. Stewart, he was the uh, leading doctor in Randolph. And uh, there was a lady, by the name of jo- Annie Bragg, a great, large lady, and uh, she was town charge, and they hired her cap up on Bear Hill. And she was kind of an odd
0: girl, and uh, she had a way she could throw her jaw out of joint, throw it to one side. And uh, she couldn't talk or anything. She just sat there, that joint, she couldn't eat or anything. So this man and woman that she was
1: living with got pretty worried. And uh, well, they sent after Dr. Stewart. Long, well, close to midnight, Stewart come, come in. And the man told him what the case was. Now he'd been around to get it set. They couldn't seem to set it and asked him if he thought he could. And Stewart said, yes, he thought so. So he went out into the woodshed and he got an old pair of tongs that he'd had that had been broken too and they have a lip on them. And he brought them in and he stuck them in the front of the stove and he put in a lot of wood and he poked the coals down and he made a lot of ceremony about it. And
0: Aaron went to visit him with a man and pretty quick he'd pull it out and he'd spin on it and see if it was hot enough and put it back in. And, uh, and they'd talk on a while, and pretty quick he'd go through that same performance again.
1: After a few times, a man's curiosity got the best of him, and he says, What are you going to do with that anyway? Well, he says, You know, when that gets right up to a good white heat, I'm going to run it down Joanne's throat and set a jaw with it.
0: Well, I guess you went. <laughs> she jumped up, went into the bedroom as so fast she could go, <laughs> and cured her jaw immediately. <laughs> I heard Dad tell that story.
1: I wanted to go to the 4th of July of East Brantree when I was 15 years old.
0: And so they had the celebration in East Brantree, and that was before the railroad came through. After the railroad came through, of course, Randolph was developed. And, uh, but they uh, had horse races, and they would race down through by the store there, and uh, Dad wanted to go.
1: I told her I didn't. I'd spent my last money to get some grain for the hens. So she said, "Alan Perk ought to have a little money if he's going over there to the Fourth of July." And
0: and Grandpa said, "Well, maybe." And he always carried his money in a hat case. When they butchered a beef the case, uh, uh, the skin, around the heart, they'd dry it, and to be tough, and they put the put money in it, and then they'd wind a
1: little string around it. He got up, and he had kind of a discouraged look, and he looked over his chains, and he finally took out a quarter. Here, he says, there's a quarter. says, I was going to give you a shining 10-cent piece. But uh, this is the smallest I've got. Says, you take that and bring me back 15 cents.
0: And so Dad took the quarter and he went over. Well, they had the horse race. And when one of the horses came down through, the man that was driving it lost control. And uh, he went right by the turn and went over into the hotel. And went right through the window, right into the hotel. And... uh, Cut the man quite bad and the horse quite bad, and of course, Dr. Stewart was there and held up. But that was uh, the story that I remember that Dad told about it. But anyway, when he got home, he handed Grandpa back his quarter.
1: When I came back, as I stepped through the door, he stood there and I handed him back his quarter, and he had a lot more cheerful looking face than he did when he gave it to me. So you see, boys had. Uh, was brought up to know the worth of money.
0: Come the night that came for Halloween, we'd all go, the parents would come and they would all bring lanterns or lamps or something to light the schoolhouse, because of course there was no lights there. And we'd have the program, then after the program they usually had uh, refreshments of cider and donuts uh, mostly. And uh, sometimes after that we kids would go out halloween in
1: used to be th- three flint brothers harry flint lester flint and waldo flint and they ordered each other never to step foot on each other's land of course all the neighbors knew about it and some of the young folks at halloween time took Lester's wheelbarrow that he was very choice of and wheeled it down into Waldo's mowing down below his barn. Where when Lester went out in the morning, he could look right down and see it. Uh, Lester wouldn't go and get it
0: off from Waldo's land. We knew that, although that was what we did to be bad. Lester had to pay his nephew 50 cents to go get the wheelbarrow off from his brother's field.
1: Well, Lester told me about it, and he says, you know, I went went down there after that wheelbarrow if I never had it. But during the day, his nephew, Harry Flint's boy, Francis, come down. He give him a quarter to go down and get the wheelbarrow and roll it up home.
2: You know, speaking
0: of schools reminds me of another of your father's stories about Avery Flint. Yes, Avery Flint and the tough school. Oh, no, that was Elijah. Elijah. Elijah Avery. Oh, okay. Could, I think that that might be, uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty interesting story. Would you mind telling that? Well, they had, uh, Uncle Elijah had just graduated from normal school over to Randolph Center. And uh, school had already started up there. And they had, the year before, they had thrown out. Uh, two or three teachers, and they started in again that year, throwing the teachers out. Was it common throwing out teachers? Oh yes, they mm-hmm. couldn't hardly keep them. If you read some of the old records that I read when I was writing my history, quite often it would tell why they uh, a teacher had been thrown out, and they'd have to get new one. Uh, the town reports, the school report in the town report are very interesting sometimes to the comments that they would make and things about teachers were were pretty bad.
1: They used to have the district system and they had a committee that hired the teachers and Braintree here was had a lot of big boys and they would only go to school winters and work summers And it was considered a rough, school, roughest school in town up here, this Upper Branch School. Sam Batchelor was the committee,
0: and uh, Sam Batchelor was the school director. And one night he came up home, and he asked Uncle Elijah if he would uh, go ahead try to teach that school.
1: One night we was just eating supper. I can remember it well. Somebody rapped the door and they hollered and told him come in and Mr. Bachelder come in. And he told his story about the school and said he'd like to get somebody to go in there that could stay. And wanted to know if Liger would try it. Well I just kinda of thought it over and he finally thought he would. So he went down in and started in school and he taught the first day and got along very well and the next day the tug of war come. I remember it how it come out but Will Campbell come to our place. He was agent to the Grim Evaporators and he was eating supper there one night and he Was one of the boys that went to school, and I'm going to tell the story just as he told it, as he told it in kind of an interesting way. He said he wasn't one of the biggest boys; he was the second one down, but he was big enough to do anything the big boys said and help him out on lugging the teacher out. And there was a big boy; he was as big as Ledger was, named Homer Young. He was the chief of the crowd told him how to do and everything and they'd follow his instructions and the second day Homer done something and Liger told him he could stay at after school and he'd like to see him. So when they went out at recess the boys made their plans that when Liger dismissed the school that Homer would get up and start to the rest, and they thought probably Lydger would try to stop him, they'd all take hold and help Homer and throw Lydger out. So he said that Liger dismissed the school and Homer got up and started to the rest, and Liger got up and started, and they all started with Homer and says Lydger begin to go right up through and his old paws begin to go each way and says we went just like nine pins, end over end.
0: And he said his old fist commenced to fly and, her dad and the boys went one way and another, and he grabbed that boy and he put him down in his seat, and uh, he said that you, everybody got into their seats right off, you could have heard a pin drop, and uh, he told the rest of them they could go, and then he informed that boy that from now on he was going to straighten out and do as he ought to. And at, uh, he didn't. There'd be more trouble, and they wanted any more trouble after that. They didn't throw him out.
1: <laughs> Elijah went back down to his desk and rang the bell, and said school was dismissed, and you may go with the rest, Homer. And says after that, says you could have heard a pin dropped in that schoolhouse any time that Elijah Flint said so. He taught the school, and a number of the boys. They told me that I've talked to them, said they never went to school a the term. They learned so much as they did that school, going to Lydger. And when they get through, end of the school, they club together and get him a large book of poems with an alligator skin cover, a very handsome book, and presented to Lydger.
2: To learn more about the Flint Duclos collection and see some wonderful photographs, visit our show notes at vtfolklife.org untapped. We've only scratched the surface of this material, and we'll surely return to it in the future. Before I sign off, I want to give a huge thank you to producer Erica Ferjuelli, who's leaving us at the end of this month to pursue future adventures in New York City. Erica has been involved from the inception to the launch of this podcast. We couldn't have done it without her. We'll miss you, Erica. From everyone at the Vermont Folklife Center, we wish you loads of luck. Episodes of Vermont Untapped are released monthly, so we'll see you in July. In the meantime, you can follow us at Vermont Folklife Center on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you haven't already, sign in and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. Thanks for listening.